Okay, um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13, all the way to 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13, 14. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you that despite the, uh, the dusting on the ground, Lord, uh, you are able to, um, well, really just warm up the sanctuary, this place. We thank you for the opportunity just to come here before you and to have good breakfast fellowship and engage with your word. I pray that this morning would um, <clears throat> be a morning that pushes and propels our faith, Lord, to venture into the unknown. Uh, the unknown as in the uncertainty like we talked about and yet there is a distinct certainty within the unknown because Lord we are delving into the character of God and you and who you are and what you say you do and the promises that you that you keep Lord they are as hard as rock they are as sure as the 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 the, uh, the heat of the sun Lord so there is no leaping into the unknown Father, for we know that we are leaping into the embrace of our Heavenly Father who knows it all, who is all, and loves us so much. And so, guys, pray that this morning, uh, help us to raise questions, uh, in, and even in our confusion, we pray that the Holy Spirit would just illuminate and help kind of clear up uh, the distractions and thoughts that we have that are not of you, and that you will kind of point us back into your word and what you have to say. And so, Lord, lead me as I, as I preach, um, as I teach, God, that you would also... <coughs> Lead our members, our college students here as well, that you bless them with the gift of discernment and uh, of, of listening too. So again, we thank you. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, so we love polls. Our society is driven by polls because in this world and in this time, um, what typically happens is that we, is, is, it is with polls to determine what is true. Right? So let's say the majority of Americans who believe in something and something they say, yeah, we believe that this is true, that somehow makes it true then. If the majority of Americans, the majority of people, they vote and they believe in something, then somehow that makes it true. So I have one last poll to ask you guys. If I were to ask you what you would prefer, being broad-minded or narrow-minded, my guess is that every single one of you would probably say, I would rather be open-minded or broad-minded. Why? Because in our world, to be narrow-minded is a bad thing, right? To be closed-minded or narrow-minded is a bad thing because no one wants to be labeled narrow-minded. The Word of God this morning is going to come crashing down on us all. And so there's a few things I believe the Lord has to say to us through our text, okay? So I want you guys to hear up, listen up, and do your best to wake up. All right. So the first point I have is this. Not all roads lead to God. <clears throat> Not all roads lead to God. <coughs> okay, so there's something called the U.S. Constitution. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. It is a guarantee in the Constitution. It's a guarantee of our freedom of religion. So all the religions of the world here in the United States, whether it's Islam, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever you want to call it, right, they must all be equally tolerated in this country, and also everyone is free to practice their religion without any type of government interference. Although nowadays that's kind of changing, right? There's a lot more kind of persecution and discrimination against Christians in particular. 
Anyways, and I think this, that principle is a good principle, that the government doesn't interfere with our constitutional right to practice our religious principles and, and things like that. But I want you guys to also know that that principle really started in the 19th century in Europe. Why? Because they said we should tolerate all religions because they believed back then and they believe today that essentially all religions are the same. That's why we should tolerate all religions, because they are all essentially the same. Now, <clears throat> there may be different trails, different pathways, but guess what? For the majority of people, they all believe that all roads lead up to the God mountain and will eventually lead you and everyone else at the same place on top. Right? So all these roads, wherever you're at, whether you're starting as a Christian, whether you're starting as a Muslim, or whatever it is, it all leads up to the top of that God mountain. So it's not that all religions must be equally tolerated, but the thinking today is that all religions must therefore be equally correct. You guys getting, you guys checking with me, right? Okay. That's where in our today's text, Jesus, he completely destroys that understanding. So maybe right now you're struggling with that kind of, uh, with that idea today too. After all, there's this silly bumper sticker that you probably have all seen before, and it is what? Coexist. Like we're all the same things that create the great tapestry called life and faith and religion, spirituality and morality. And so we equate religion to that of race, where black, Asian, brown, white, it's okay. We're all just, yeah, different in the exterior, but we're all part of the human race. And so a lot of people think Christian, Muslim, atheist, Buddhist, whatever you want to call it, we're all one religion. We may look different outwardly, but we're all the same religion. So I want to tell you this right now, guys. To live unashamedly, to live as a disciple, to live in pursuit of the gospel, there needs to be a strictness. There needs to be a strictness. There needs to be an unflinching rigidity in acknowledging that, you know what, not all roads lead to God. But how can we ever say that? Well, the Bible says it. In particular, John 14, 6, we said it yesterday. I am the way, the truth, and the life right? No one comes to the Father except through me. The apostles say the same thing. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So this is a bit conflicting for some people. How can you say that we live in a world that tolerates broad-mindedness, open-mindedness, and condemns narrow-mindedness, but now you're saying that even though the whole world says all religions are the same, that you, as Christians, are supposed to say all religions are not the same. In fact, all roads do not lead to God. In fact, it is the only way of Jesus that leads to salvation. How in the world can we live a life proclaiming that kind of message? So it's a bit conflicting. The world is saying all the religions are the same. The only difference is your perspective. That's what they're saying. Your perspective is all that's different. The only difference is the way that you see things in your heart and mind. So you're not allowed to say that one religion is better or superior to another. Therefore, you must stop evangelizing. You must stop proselytizing because that is bad. How dare you? Because the moment that you start evangelizing, start sharing your faith, you are saying that what I believe and who I am and who I represent is better than what you believe and who you are and who you represent. Now, I'm going to read you a quote, and I want you to listen. This is difficult, and I actually was thinking about if I even sh should include this, but it gets kind of philosophical. Tim Keller said this, okay? I'm going to read it slowly. If you believe some religions are superior to others, then you have to evangelize. 
But if you do not believe that religions are superior to others, then you are evangelizing your religious relativism view. You're still evangelizing. When you urge me, for example, not to urge my religion on anyone else, then you're urging your religion on me. You are doing the very thing you forbid. You see, there is no such thing as saying everybody is right. Because to the people who say, no, I don't believe everybody is right, you have to say, well, you're wrong. Everybody is right, but you just did the thing you're forbidding. Everyone say, what? The point that Tim Keller is saying is this. When they say, just because you think your religion is right, you have no right to evangelize and share your faith, that those people who are saying and telling you to stop are in fact evangelizing themselves. Does it make sense? Whenever atheists or non-believers say, you can't do that, it is the same as Christians saying, this is who God is. They are espousing their views, their beliefs, their doctrines. So what does it mean to live unashamedly? It is to acknowledge that there's only one way, one road, one path that leads to God, and that's through Jesus. Amen? Amen? Right? All right, but here's the second point. The way of life, that is the narrow way that the Bible is talking about, though, the narrow path, it's going to constrict us. Okay, so you've heard of the reference, the straight and narrow. In the dictionary, it means a law-abiding route through life. This is actually from an old uh, English text of this, of this uh, passage, but the difference is this. When we spell straight, we spe spell straight, right? S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, right? But in the old English, they actually never spelled it that way. In fact, they spelled it differently. They spelled it S-T-R-A-I-T. What are some words that, that have that word in it? Straight jacket, right? Straight jacket. Straight jacket means to restrain a person who's out of control. Another word is dire straits. Have you heard of that before? Dire straits. It means a bad situation in which we have a few good options. So if I'm in dire straits, that means that you're just, you're just stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? So here we have Jesus saying that the way of life is both. It is narrow meaning that there can be no deviation from the path and that it's straight, meaning it's going to be filled with pressures. It's going to be filled with hardships, that this straight path is going to have struggles and affliction. Doesn't sound very enticing, does it? So what about this way of life is narrow and straight? My point under that is this. It's narrow and straight. It constricts us because it's worthwhile. Because it's worthwhile. I want to explain. <clears throat> when I was a young, wait, did I say when I was a young? <laughs> Sorry. When I was young, I wanted to be a doctor. Don't lie. How many of you guys wanted to be a doctor when you were little? Come on, you're all Asian. Stop playing, right? Um, so we all wanted to be a doctor. Well, I, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to wear a white coat. I wanted to carry a stethoscope. I wanted to ask people if they concurred with me. I don't know if you know that reference. I wanted it all. I wanted the prestige. I wanted the fame. I wanted the money. I wanted the 
whatever you want to call it, right? So I got good grades throughout middle school, and my high school grades were eh, okay. And so I thought, okay, college, here I come. Right? So the first thing I did was, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't say I'm undeclared. I said, I'm pre-med. I'm majoring in bio. I'm pre-med. And so, um, <coughs> so I did that. But then I realized um, studying sucked. It was hard. I'd much rather be playing ball outside with my friends or hanging out with friends and, than, than staying cooped up in the library studying. So suffice to say, I'm not a doctor, right? I quickly got out of my pre-med route. And so fast forward many years, I end up marrying a doctor, right? So they say, if you can't be one, marry one. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so I remember asking her what her college life was like. And Grace, she, she lived in uh, D.C. She went to D GW, right? <coughs> and so one would think that living in such a cool city like Washington, D.C. How many of you guys think D.C. is cool? You don't know. It is cool. I lived here my entire life. I only really recently discovered it, like when I got married to Grace. It is a great city, a lot of cool stuff. So I'm thinking, man, someone who lived in this cool city that you would think that they would explore, <laughs> explore it and just really do get a lot out of it, right? Uh, well, that wasn't her story. Every time Grace, during our marriage, we'd visit D.C., namely the GW campus, Grace would always, always, always give me a tour. And her tours sucked. <laughs> Why? Why? Because this will be the gist of it, and I'm not kidding. In fact, I, I made sure I got permission from her last night. Right? <clears throat> she would say this. That's the library I lived in. And then that's the cafe I go to that make really good coffee. I'm like, okay, so let's go there. She goes, where I just study for hours. And then that's the other library. This one was small, but it was really quiet, and so I really liked it. And then this is the law library. And I would sometimes go there because my sunbed or my older classmate would give me access with their card so I can go and study. And there were just so many amazing spots there to just study and read. So she would just literally give me a tour of all the places where she just sat down and did the most uneventful thing throughout her four years in college, and that is study. She even said that on her first day of her winter break of her senior year, when she already got accepted to med school, right, when she should be part, probably partying and hanging loose, all her friends begged her, please, can you just go out with us this Friday night? It's going to be amazing. We're not going to go do anything crazy, clubbing or whatever, but let's go and just hang loose, let's relax. And then she goes, all right, so she got dressed, and then at that moment when the friends were about to knock on the door, she took her clothes off, got on her pajamas and said, you know what, I need to go study. And so as I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, yeah, I would never have been a doctor. If I did, I'd probably give you the worst treatment ever. But here's the thing. But now she's finishing up residency. She'll be done with it all. And so I asked her this. I said, Grace, after all the stuff, pretty much like not having the college experience that a lot of people are kind of accustomed to, going out and doing, not to say that she doesn't have friends, not to say that she didn't experience those things, but certainly there are a lot of restrictions. I said, after doing all that, was it worth it? And she said, you know, during the time it was difficult. I wasn't really quite sure as to why I was doing this. Every single day seemed so monotonous and, so, and <coughs> excuse me, so routine. But now I know 
coming close and I see the light at the tunnel, I know that there's nothing else that I would rather do and it is so worth it. If you want to pursue something valuable, expect that there will be many things in your life that will and must be laid aside. The word no will always be something we say to the things that we desire for the sake of something that we find more valuable. Look, there are going to be so many things in your Christian life where you're going to be compelled to do this and go there and to compromise and do all this stuff. You have to get into the mindset and the heart set of saying no to these desires. Saying no to these temptations, saying no to these fleshly, kind of whatever you want to call it, all because you know that there's something far more valuable. The process is hard, but it's about taking one step at a time while at the same time simultaneously looking ahead. You see, the way of life or the way of discipleship to Jesus is the way of self-denial. Following Jesus, living for Jesus, walking with Jesus is a life of constant self-denial. Jesus said, if you would follow me, you must deny yourself and take up the cross every day. Even in the Old Testament, it says in Psalm 1, those who walk take advice from the wicked and hang out with sinners and join the community of scoffers. And those who delight in God's word, they meditate on it day and night. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying this. There's this one group, and they're going to face destruction on Judgment Day. And then there's another group, the fruitful group, the productive group, the one that stayed the course, and they'll inherit eternal life on Judgment Day. You see, the Christian life is no different in terms of how one grows and matures than any other discipline in life. It's really not that different from the other disciplines in life that you have. In fact, um, I had the privilege of watching Les Mis with Gina and with Joanna and with Joe and my wife. Right? And it was great. A couple days ago, the music was amazing. <clears throat> the singers were awesome. But do you know what was going on in my, my, my mind the entire time? The whole time I was thinking, how in the world are their voices not giving out? I was thinking that. Why? Because... They're hitting crazy high notes. They're belting out their music. I mean, it's just like crazy. And, but to be on Broadway or to be on that level of professional uh, as a musician or vocalist, man, you know that them getting to that point, it didn't happen overnight. It did not happen overnight. When you guys watch athletes compete in the Olympics, have you seen their bodies? I'm not telling you lust. I'm just saying, have you seen their physique? Unless, like, it's an archery. <laughs> I see, it's so funny. I hear, I hear Korea is, like, amazing in archery. And so I saw a competition, right? And, then, like, I feel like it's these ajashis I've seen, like, at restaurants who are doing because they're, like, you know, they're so out of shape. And then they're, like, pressing against their face. But they're so out of shape. I'm like, oh, I guess anyone can do it. Um, right? <clears throat> but, man, I got to say, these athletes, right, aside from archery, they, it requires crazy dedication, disciplines of eating right, sleeping right, practicing, building up strength, focus, focus, and focus. It's intense. The sprinters, have you seen their bodies? It's like no percent body fat. It's crazy. That's, that's no way to live, right? But they do that. And then have you seen the crew teams, the Olympic crew teams, right? It's crazy. They're shredded. They're in tip-top shape. You know, it's funny. A few months ago, uh, I, I belong to a gym, you wouldn't think it, but I belong to a gym called 24 Hour Fitness. And there was actually a sign 
on the website that said that there was an Olympic tryout. Olympic tryout for rugby and for a couple other kind of track events. I was like, what? In other words, it was an open cast call. I guess there's, there's looking to see if there's anyone out there who can do it. And so for me as a former athlete who can't seem to let go of my glory days, I said, you know what, I'll, I think I'll try it. I think I'll try it out. And so I looked at the requirements, and there's, a, there's like a general requirement list to get to that point. And they said, this is what we'll be testing you on, so make sure that you know how to do this and do it well. And so it said that you should be able to run a 100-meter dash, and I think it said something however many seconds, this fast, right? And it also said you got to be able to jump doing the single or whatever jump thing this far, this many feet. Another one said you have to be able to squat this much, squat these many pounds. And there was a couple other things like that. And so I sadly looked at my gut and my chicken legs, and I realized maybe next time. Maybe next time. I really want to do it, but I know that the trial, which was only just a couple weeks <coughs> in that month uh, after I saw the sign, I know that if I firmly, if I tried out, I would have had a heart attack. I would have had a heart attack. I would have gotten injured. Anything would have happened. And that's what we think we can do in our Christian lives. We know we need to get stronger, but instead of doing what it takes on a daily basis, what do we do? We rely on retreats, on Sunday services, we depend on podcasts, and we think that somehow we can cram spiritual growth into our lives. You cannot procrastinate spiritually and expect spiritual maturity. And so when we see little to no spiritual gain, we're like, well, what gives? Five years from now, you're going to look back and you say, how come I'm not where I, where I believe I, I would have been with God? How come 10 years from now, I don't know as much scripture as I would like to, would have liked to have known? How come 15 years from now, that's difficult for you to lead your family as the head of the household or maybe as the wife in the household? And it's hard to discipline and spiritually lead your children. Why? Because the whole time you're just cramming. There is no steady foundational growth. There is no development in establishing Christ as your core. We are a generation of shortcuts, and we love making compromises in life. We don't care to take the time to study God's word, and when we come to church, it's more about how the sermon or the praise will make me feel rather than simply a desire to worship God. So we're religious about posting Instagram pics. We're religious about sharing likes, but we find it a burden to share our faith. Our priority is about the here and now rather than building up the foundation needed. I bet that there's a lot of people here right now, the 18 of you, who really want to memorize Scripture. How many of you guys would love to memorize just copious amounts of Scripture? No one? Just two? Well, that's discouraging. Well, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know how I can continue on because my, my assumption was that all of you guys wanted to do that. So I'm going to go ahead and delete the rest of my sermon. Uh, <laughs> Can, for the sake of my story, can you all say, yes, Pastor David, I want to memorize a lot of scripture. Okay, thank you. Is that so hard? <coughs> right? And so we say, I'll get an app. I'll do it this way. I'll wait till my semester's over because right now it's crazy. I'll tell you right now, the answer is no to all of that. Why? Because to live 
unashamedly upon that straight and narrow path, your Christian life and the development of your Christian life, it demands priority. It demands priority. Even over your academic life, it demands priority. Even over your personal life, your relationships, a new boy, that new girl that you kind of fell head over heels in love with. Yes, even that person, it demands priority over your relationships. And yes, it demands priority even over your family life. I think the sad reality is that a lot of us here, your heart and your mind is a bit too crowded today. Can I hear mm-hmm? No? There's too many things going on and your filter is not filtering out what should stay and what should go. So to walk the narrow and straight path is to make sacrifices, is to understand that life will feel constrained. It will be, but to follow after Jesus and get this, <coughs> remember, even though thousands upon thousands of people followed Jesus in, in the Bible, at the end of the day, it was just a small group of disciples who stayed with him, right? A lot of people, they just want to see the, the glamour and the gloriousness of these miracles and these healings. Maybe they just wanted a quick feed and all that stuff. But it, at the end of the day, it was really just a few small disciples who stayed with him. But get this, even at the moment when Jesus needed them, even those faithful few abandoned the Lord over some sleep and over some persecution. It's difficult. But not only that, there's a second way in which this path will constrict us. It's not popular. Going upstream or going against the flow is a lonely life. It is. Well, Jesus, he makes it clear that the road we walk with him, even though it leads to life, even though it leads to fulfillment, even though it leads to satisfaction, it is still, in fact, a narrow road. It is, in fact, a straight path, and there are only a few who walk on it. There's only a few who walk on it. Everyone else is on the wide path. Everyone else is on the broad path. And so I think we need to know that the narrow path is not very well received. That narrow path is not very hip. It's not glamorous. It's not famous. It is not popular. In fact, the path of discipleship can be very lonely. It can be lonely. For me, I was one of the few Christian individuals in my high school. My good friends um, from high school, my best friends, they just kind of tolerated my faith, you know. After high school graduated and everything, and it's been, what, like 15 years since, 17, whatever, it's hard for us to meet because my faith is who I am. Not to say that I'm constantly shoving G's down people's throat, but... What naturally comes out of my speech is the gospel. And it's cumbersome for some other people. And so while they <coughs> meet, excuse me, I'm kind of by myself in this. It's, it can be lonely. Friends will leave you. Family will leave you. You know, Noah, for 120 years, was publicly ridiculed. Abraham was told to leave his home of comfort, his country, his family, all to be God's man and to live in obedience. Joseph was 17 years old. Can you imagine being 17 and being all alone in a foreign nation in Egypt? He was rejected by his own family. He was punished for his faithfulness. He was all alone. Daniel, with 
Only three other young friends, they stood up to the biggest powerhouse at that time, Babylon, all in order to be faithful to God. It was a whole nation against them. Jeremiah was rejected by the prophets, by his peers of that day, because he would not preach what they preached. They preached peace, peace, peace. Jeremiah preached judgment. Jesus' disciples were called to leave their families, careers, homeland, religious respectability, all that just to follow Jesus. Timothy was encouraged by Paul to not be ashamed because Paul was, who was his mentor, was a prisoner. But he exhorted Timothy to continue on walking in that unpopular truth of who Jesus is. You know that Christianity will never be popular? So don't think that one day your, your school and your circle of friends, that one day they'll be all like, you know what? Let's just like love on you for being who you are as a Christian. It's not going to happen. Christianity will never be popular. Your mentioning of Jesus will be met with disdain, with criticism. It will be. So why choose this life then? Why walk this path that will be filled with such problems and constraints and issues and struggles? Because there's grace. There's a whole lot of it. You see, whenever you and I, we think of these two ways, the broad path and the narrow path or narrow way, <clears throat> we think that the broad way or broad path is a wide road that's filled with just horrible people, like a bunch of Hitlers, a bunch of, yeah, all these obviously bad people. And then over there on the narrow path are, is a road that's filled with like all these good people, like a bunch of Mother Teresas, a bunch of whatever you want to call it, right? But that's not how the two roads are distinct. This is how the two roads are distinct. One road is filled with people who think they can save themselves. The other road is filled with those who only know that Jesus can do it. That's how it's separate. That's how it's distinct. So guess what? On that broad, wide path, there's going to be a lot of good people. A lot of charitable Generous, compassionate, merciful people. But all those people are people who think they can save themselves. Who think that they can be good enough. Who think that their work will be good enough. Who think that their self-righteousness will be good enough. And so the scary thing is that Broad Road is not just filled with atheists and people who obviously hate Jesus. It's actually populated, and here's the kicker, by all sorts of church people. That Broad Path, Broad Road. It's going to be filled with a lot of church folks who look good, who live good lives, who believe they're good enough to make the cut. But what these folks don't have, which is why they're, they're on the broad path, what they don't have is a sense of hopelessness of their sin. These good church folks would never cry out to Jesus for mercy. These good church folks, they might believe in Jesus when it's convenient for them, but they believe in themselves more. In fact, a few verses down the road, Jesus makes it clear. Some will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast demons out and do mighty works? And what did Jesus say? He said, he'll say, I never knew you. So for the ones who are on that narrow path, how would, that, how would they be described? People who are on the narrow path <clears throat> will hear me out. We can kind of get some semblance of the blessed from what Jesus said in Beatitudes. <coughs> On the narrow path are those who are poor in spirit. 
meaning those who realize their own sin and spiritual emptiness, who recognize their own spiritual poverty and realize that they can do nothing apart from Jesus. On the narrow path are those who mourn over sin. In other words, <coughs> they recognize what sin means to them, but most importantly, they recognize what their sins mean to a holy God. And so there's godly sorrow. On the narrow path are those who are meek. People think meek means weak. It does not. Those who are meek mean those who are humble and those who are willingly submissive and will surrender and be obedient to God. Those are people who are on the narrow path. On the narrow path are the merciful, those who understand the mercy that God gave them and that they would also extend that same mercy to others. On the narrow path are those who are pure in heart. This is a heart that involves a singular love and a passion towards God, a heart that holds no hypocrisy, no ulterior motives, a heart that is transparent, a heart kind of like Thomas's, that is uncompromising. On the narrow path are those who are persecuted for Christ's sake, those who will do anything for Jesus, even at the expense of of their own reputation, even at the expense of their own success, their own fame, their own comfort, and even their own very life. These are some of the people who will be on that narrow path. So what then? The call for us today is this, guys. We have to enter the way of life. Now our problem, okay, we have to enter the way of life. Our problem is that we tend to overcomplicate things. And so maybe you're all kind of scratching your heads right now thinking, uh, what does this all mean? What do I have to do? Guys, the gospel is not some philosophy to be discussed over a cup of coffee. The gospel, and I want you guys to hear me out well, the gospel is a commitment to be made and lived out. You hear that? The gospel is a commitment to be made and lived out. You know, from our text today, in the midst of all these descriptors, there's this one command in these two verses, the word enter. This is imperative. It's a command. It means go in. Enter. So get this. To unashamedly live as a disciple of Jesus is to live a very active, a very forward pursuit of eternal life, even though it's all about grace. But it's still very active. You see, Jesus, he doesn't just leave his words to remain as thoughts for the people to just kind of ponder and be introspective and think about it for the rest of the days. Jesus commands the people to respond, to make a response, to make a decision. Don't think theology, live it out. Don't just meditate on the word, but obey it. To be a disciple of Jesus is to know that all roads don't lead to God. That this path, even though it's narrow, yes, it will be constricting. But like all things of worth, what, what it will do is that it will grow you. It will mature you. And finally, God, he calls us to choose the way of life. That as Christians, as those who say, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior, that we don't rest upon our works, but that we rest upon his grace and upon his work. And that you know that you can do nothing apart from Jesus who saves but now our, our call is this, Jesus says. He says, be active in seeking me and be active in looking more like me. Right? Okay. So let's pray. 
So what are you struggling with today? What are you struggling with today? That straight and narrow path is not popular. It is difficult. And I think it really kind of keeps us from wanting to go any deeper with Jesus. Because for us, in our minds, we think there's no benefit to it. And we don't do it for the purpose of simply getting anything out of Jesus. We do it because Jesus is Jesus. We do it because God is God. I think the reality that we have to understand is that many of us in our Christian walks, or quote-unquote Christian walks, that we live quite inactively and quite passively and quite defensively. You know, oftentimes in Scripture, the Christian life, as Apostle Paul would kind of describe it as, is to be, is almost kind of militant. That there's an onward advancement. That paired with the divine sovereignty that God, He really is in control, that He wills what He wills, but paired with that is this human responsibility. <clears throat> you know, God's giving you talents and giftings and opportunities and resources to advance His kingdom, to glorify His name to build up the church, to show the light of Christ, to extend grace and mercy. And what do we do? We still kind of resort to living a passive, scared, inactive life. The call today and the call this morning is for us to change that. It's to change it. If you want to grow spiritually, you must delve into the Word of God. You must seek Him in prayer. But as we do so, we have to understand it's not about we have to, but we get to. Right? Like God, He revealed His Word. That's awesome. We get to hear from the Creator of the universe and how He cares for us and what His plans are for us and what His plans are for us the entire world, all that, it's in Scripture. His truths are there. And then through Christ, not that we have to pray, but we get to pray. Like, why would we... Why would we stifle that channel that we have to God? He hears our prayers. We get to talk and we have access to him. So I don't know. Maybe the Lord, he's convicting you right now. There are certain things in your life that um, you've been taking a back seat to. You know, maybe this is kind of the spark that we need right now to kind of get ourselves spiritually in gear. But it's done not by your strength because you will falter. The path is difficult, but this is where you rely upon the grace and the Spirit of God to lead you and empower you. Maybe you don't have a hunger for His Word. So God, give me a hunger for Your Word. Maybe you think it's too um, distracting or just difficult simply to pray and, and devote a few minutes. Say, God, can you, can you give me a heart and mind that will focus on You? during this time so I could pray to you.
you don't know what to say, my encouragement is this. Pray over the Psalms. Pray over the Scriptures. Let the words of God be your words. Okay, so let's take a few minutes just to pray. Kind of devote our thinking and our thoughts and be challenged. And we'll go into our final.